also foundation, I'm a program manager. Um, there's still a couple of people still to come, but it's only going to be people for the first few minutes, so I'm sure they won't mind missing that. Um, before we start, I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the elders, past and present of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Um, I don't know how familiar you are, you are with the war please, but we like to think of ourselves as embedded at the heart of journalism in Australia. Um, a big part of our work is to advocate for press freedom both here in Australia and for our colleagues in the region. Right now we're hard at work preparing for our annual press freedom dinner. It's a major fundraiser along with MIA for the Media Safety and Solidarity Fund. This fund assists our colleagues in the Asia Pacific region through times of emergency, war and hardship. It's a really fun event. If you're interested in buying a ticket, then come along. Um, you can talk to my colleagues or me at the end of today. Um, we've also got some raffle tickets on sale. You can get a really great prize and support a very good cause. As well as raising money, we also use this time of the year to raise awareness. And as well as the dangers and challenges our colleagues face in the region, there are also significant pressures on journalists right here in Australia. Since you're here today for our discussion on secure communications, I'm sure you're very aware of the recent debates over the national security laws. These laws target whistleblowers and the journalists who work with them. They allow ASIO to spy on journalists accessing data about their stories and sources. MIA believes these laws are part of a campaign by our government to control information. We're obviously all here today because we believe that's wrong. We know that the work of journalists and their ability to protect whistleblowers and confidential sources is essential to a strong and healthy before I hand over to our panel for some tips on how you can work safer in your communications and reporting, I want to mention the 30 Days of Press Freedom campaign. It's running all this month in the lead up to the World Press Freedom Day on May 3. And it's a joint initiative between NEA, the Northeast, and the International Federation of Journalists, Asia Pacific Branch. We're sharing stories of press freedom all month across the internet. Follow the hashtag 30DaysPF and add your voice to the campaign. You can even get your photo taken with our campaign poster after today's talk to show your support. Um, my colleague Angus from Mia will be here and be taking some pictures later on and can answer any questions that you have about the Press Freedom Campaign or Mia. You'll be able to find him because he's wearing a purple leather jacket. Um, as Peter Brester can attest, when we find that rare cause that unites all of us in the media, we have a mighty voice. We've got a lovely piece from Peter in the latest issue of the magazine, which you probably already have a copy of. Um, in there you'll also find a fantastic piece loaded with tips on secure communications from Josh Taylor, which I'm sure the boys will talk about today. It's on page 29. So without further ado, please switch your phones to silent. Um, feel free to keep the discussion going online. Um, our hashtags are Future Fridays, War Please, and 30 Days Kingdom. So, please welcome our panel. Paul Farrell is a Guardian Australian journalist who produces investigations on immigration detention, defence, privacy and surveillance. He has written extensively about the passage of the federal government's national security legislation and the impact it will have on press freedom in Australia. Josh, over there on the left, or your right, is a senior journalist for the global technology website ZDNet. Based in Australia, Josh covers telecommunications, government IT, security and the national broadband network. For the past four years, Josh has been keenly focused on controversial government topics like internet filtering, mandatory data retention, and online copyright infringement practices. Uh, and finally, Luke Bacon is a designer at the Open Australia Foundation. In 2014, his main work for the foundation was on They Vote For You, where citizens can see how their elected MPs vote on their 
also co-founder of Detention Logs, a journalism project to launch with support from the Guardian Australia, New Matilda and Global Mail to publish records and source FOR reports, covering evidence of conditions in immigration centres. We've had time for questions in a little while, but I'll let some of the boys take over from here. Hello. Hello. Um, yes, over to you guys. I think we wanted to kind of try and make it as much discussion as possible and, and it's just an area where um, everyone is learning and also such kind of moving thing that you know, we could tell us questions and try and you know, get to about some practical stuff as well. But um, Paul was going to talk a little bit about the current, what kind did you want to talk about the current laws and yeah, um, that stuff? Yeah, I, I might just talk really quickly about some of that and some of my own personal experiences and, and what I, the way I've kind of rationalised this and what I kind of see as the, the different skills that you probably need to start building. Um, and I guess the, the bad news first is that you can't guarantee security, um, so sorry, um, but you know, that's, um, that is kind of a reality of it and if anyone tells you that that can guarantee that you know if you use this tool it'll be totally secure then they're lying and you probably shouldn't trust them um, and you know they're probably working for an intelligence agency um, so the um <laughs> that's not the bad thing i think that also applies to you if your colleagues ever tell you know people on twitter or something like that you can contact me confidentially via this meme you should go and tell them not to tell people that um, because again that's putting again citizens at risk yeah um, but I think the, for me, I, I think there are three sides to this that everyone, the journalist, should have a kind of basic understanding of. And the first is have an understanding of the technical kind of mechanics and infrastructure of the internet. The second is having a basic understanding of the legal framework that we all operate in. And the third is to kind of bring those together and understand what tools you can use to mitigate the various risks that exist. Um, because essentially what this is, you know, we can't, you can't guarantee security, but what all of this is is an exercise in risk management, essentially. It's about reducing the risks, um, but, you know, to be able to do that, you need to sort of determine what they are. Um, so if you go to the kind of, the, the technical stuff, um, you know, the, whatever our kind of needs to have a basic understanding of is just a little bit about how the internet works and, you know, the fact that it is this kind of, series of networks and connections which incidentally and as a result of the fact that that is how it works, there are always going to be vulnerabilities at various points throughout it and there are going to be various types of data that can be requested or, or accessed to kind of facilitate um, you know, a greater understanding of what you're doing um, and that can include you know, certain things like um, you know, internet protocol addresses um, which can determine what you've been doing, what kind of web activities you have been kind of engaging in, um, and you know through that also other things like location data um, and lots of other. There's there's also you know things like particular identifiers of devices, like um, you know many types of computers will have what's called a MAC address or an IMEI code, um, and there's all these kind of different ways that um, you can sort of be sort of revealed and your activities can be revealed online. Um, you know, and I would really encourage everyone to sort of 
because I think we have very limited amount of time, and I think hopefully what you can all take away from this is the building blocks of how to sort of start growing all that understanding. So you can sort of develop an understanding of some of those different things. That is really helpful. And then you get the second part. Then is of course the legal framework. This is like you know encryption in like 30 seconds. Okay, so <laughs> sorry if it's a bit truncated. But um, the second part is the kind of legal issues and. We know, and fortunately one of the good things about what's happening in this current debate is that the data retention has kind of made a lot of journalists much more aware of some of the risks that they face. And the particular risks for journalists are often around associative data or data that can reveal who you were talking to or where you were. Because, of course, the craft necessarily requires that we keep confidences with people. And that's often one of the highest priorities. And the legal framework that we're operating in means that it's exceedingly easy for any kind of telecommunications data or metadata to be very easily accessed. Um, and that's done through, of course, a simple form, essentially, that the AFP will log and give to a telecommunications company, or it will give to Apple, or it will give to a search engine provider that can help them piece together who you might have been talking to, where you might have been to help kind of pin that information down and kind of build it all from there. Um, so those are kind of generally some of, in a very general sense, some of the risks that access to telecommunications data presents. Um, and it is now a warrant is now required, it's true, for access to journalists, telecommunications data. Um, but I don't think that's a particularly high threshold to meet. And the other issue is that that warrant doesn't apply to anyone else who might incidentally be involved in an investigation. So if an agency, the, the practical example is, you know, an agency knows that information has been leaked to a journalist, they don't want to go through the process of getting a warrant. So instead they work out who are the 50 people who had access to that data within the agency, and then they would just request their sort of telecommunications data and begin a sort of networking up based on that. Um, so it's still very easy to kind of undertake that kind of analysis. And because the risks are so high, because the thresholds are so low, that should be something that factors high in the kind of risk assessment or framework that you develop. Um, I think that's probably what I want to say on the legal stuff, just, just for now, we'll go into a bit more detail then later. Um, and then, of course, the third component is once you've identified what the, the legal framework is, what the risks are surrounding the technical issues, then you get to kind of what tools you need to use and where you need to sort of go from there. And often the tools will have two core components, um, and those are tools that will help you anonymize your identity or the identity of people that you're communicating with. And the second is tools that will help you encrypt or, or very directly conceal what the nature of those communications are. Um, and if you take it to the first point, that on the first point of anonymization, that's tools like like Tor and functions like that. And the way that Tor works is that it will route your traffic through a series of kind of servers and relays in a way that makes it very hard, in a way that will, in theory, although not of a guarantee, um, help you to kind of anonymize or conceal your, your traffic. Um, and that's really useful because um, if an agency made a request for telecommunications data, if you were routing your traffic through Tor, it would make it a lot more difficult for them to determine who you might be communicating with. Um, and of course, that applies equally to the 
person you have to communicate with, but it means that they must also be using those kind of tools. Um, then you get to the sort of encryption part um, with the contents of it, and there'll be situations where that will come up where maybe it will just be interoffice communications where you need to communicate on a very high level story securely and you need to do those sort of things. And those kind of tools, um, some of you might be familiar with some of their names already, they're, they're things like OTR chat, um, TGP email, um, certain types of file encryption. Uh, some people use TrueCrypt, although there are some issues with that. Um, and there's other kinds of disk encryption and, and things like that. So if you use kind of a combination of those tools, if they are used appropriately, can help you reduce a lot of risks in different situations. But the issue is you, know, you need to have an understanding of all of those components first we can get to tools. Um, and I think I'll just leave it out and then The most important thing as well is it's not just journalists who have to get their heads around it, they have to also be efficient to the sources about how to use that before you ever get to the center of communicating it. Because if they don't know how to use it instantly, the journalists can have all the encryption tools that they want, but the source that they're talking to doesn't have those that knowledge or that ability to do that. It's just it's pointless. And I think the other thing is in the the, uh, the threat model of who is who is looking to access your you know this information about you and what are their capabilities. Um, at a certain level, they're the people kind of writing encryption standards, and they have enormous resources, and you're basically kind of powerless. In, in you know they will access your information, um, but. You know, not everyone's doing stories that are, you know, things that are threatening those people that, that people might come after you. So there's that kind of angle as well. Like, it depends what you're working on in some senses. But I think it's very difficult to identify who, you know, now or into the future is trying to access your information to do with a particular story. Now, and that, I'd really be interested to hear what you guys think about that and, and how you kind of go about um, like trying to identify you know, who, is, who might be interested in this and what are they. <laughs> it's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, uh, a lot of people I talk to uh, generally have a higher level of technical understanding as a, a beginning point because yeah. the, the nature of this stuff, right? But um, it, can, it can vary, like, just because they're working in the tech industry and they're understanding how this stuff works. So, um, so it's just to talk a little bit. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, so I don't think they, although they may work in the tech industry, they may not have an understanding I should say as well, I, I work for the Open Australia Foundation as a designer and software developer and web three full-time staff, so everyone has a whole lot of different stuff. Um, so I'm not a journalist. I am actually a member of the Alliance and an MEA member, um, and I do consider a lot of what I do journalism, but I certainly would not be um, covered you know, as a, somebody being paid to do journalism under the, the definition of, of journalism. Data Retention Act, uh, and I kind of very much come at, it, come at this from the perspective of someone who is trying to get information and pass that to the public, or truthful information about the government, um, government programs, and make that available to the public, and that's 
fallout or projects that are bound. Um, so I'm kind of coming out from a sources perspective in some ways, that, um, which is kind of quite scary, scary as well because, and particularly the more I read about cloud encryption and about surveillance, the more kind of paranoid in some ways, but depressed about it as well because um, you don't have to look, I mean in the last, today, the story about Baltimore police using um, forms of surveillance and being trained to lie to judges about what powers they have and then earlier in the week of the USA Today stories about um, the US um, bulk collection of phone records over the last 20 years is a new program that we know about and again um, authorities were training staff to go and lie to judges and um, government officials about their powers in those programs. So um, that's that's one angle on it. Um, but then the other thing is the enormous uh, will of the, the state and institutions to come down on individuals who um, who are doing work to pass uh, information out to the public so that they can can hold them <coughs> into account. Um, so that's kind of quite scary in some ways. So I'm very concerned about surveillance. Um, and I really think that you know, as journalists, you need to be you know, campaigning for the public interest. And that's not just about protecting journalists under the law, it's about protecting everyone under the law. I thought the whole debate about uh, you know, protecting journalists uh, their data yeah. was a bit of a misleading. Well, I, I think in some ways it's, I'm interested to hear what you guys think about this, but those, that exemption is kind of worse than it not being there in some ways because it's going to trick some journalists into thinking that they their, um, these powers aren't going to be used to identify their sources. Yeah. And, and that was the other thing as well. You know, when, when they put this, uh, this journalistic submission in there, which was only, there was a fairly narrow issue for journalists, but uh, you also started to get articles about how to get around metadata, so metadata was in a vacuum, and there was no other you know, methods of obtaining data. I think that's, that's seriously problematic because People saying you can contact us on Gmail because the government doesn't have access to the Gmail data is uh, incredibly misleading and incredibly dangerous as well. So you know, they don't they don't have strict access to Gmail through the data retention organization, but that doesn't mean they don't have access to it. Yeah, I'm really interested in who. The, I think there's people from different kind of backgrounds here. There are people who are working journalists, reporters for news organizations. Yeah. Yes. Are there people who are kind of work independently by themselves and stuff. Is, there, is anyone here who worked for ASIO? Yeah. <laughs> Probably. Yeah? Yes? I just wanted to ask a question. Yeah, yeah that's great. Um, and everyone jump in with questions. What proportion uh, of you know the communications that you send out in your day-to-day in -day jobs would be things that you would be looking to use encryption tools? I mean, is it every time you open a browser, it's Tor? Is it every time you send an email, it's, it's PGP? Because it seems to me, um, if, it, if, it, yeah. if it isn't every time, then that might tell security agencies something about the times that you are using it. Uh, and if it is every time, then it might slow you down. So I, I just wanted to, to hear from your professional experiences about that. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, yeah, so the, I think you kind of approach it as well from a sort of tiered risk assessment framework as well. If you look at it, um, you know, the reality is your all of your day-to-day -day communications um, that you you know have with people 
offers, um, you know, are probably not going to be high risk enough that you need to, you know, send them using PGP all the time, um, and you know, all of your day-to-day -day web browsing is probably not going to be at the point where you need to use, <laughs> um, you know, tool for all of it. And uh, the unfortunate reality is that because some of these tools are a little bit complex and cumbersome to use, that it would really, really quite disastrously affect your workflows probably if you had to do that. Um, so I think part of it is sort of determining in what situations you really need to use those kind of tools and, and being able to target those ones. But it is true that you are going to potentially have the situation then where the, it's possible for you know, that, the fact that you are using certain encryption algorithms to be detected and things like that. I, I still think it is you know, unquestionably worth using them in the circumstances that you need to. Um, and I think those, the, the potential protections you can gain from them far outweigh those particular risks. But I mean, as a sort of like practical example of how I would, I would sort of work, um, I mean, I have like a, a, a MacBook Air that I kind of use for a lot of internal stuff and uploading things to our content management system and just various like, you know, little whatever you need to jump on file stories, just, you know, the, you, you guys all have that computer from your regular kind of work process. Um, but then I've also got two other computers that I use for very different purposes as well. And one of them, um, and this is all about kind of being able to get your workflow and sort of sequestering it and working out how to use it, how to make it kind of work for you. And one of them is a computer that boots from what's called Tails. Um, and Tails is, if there's any tool that you guys should try using or try to get an understanding of by the end of this, I highly recommend it's Tails. And the reason for that is because Tails is an entire operating system that boots off either a DVD or a USB that uh, is very good at kind of limiting the, the, the kind of traces on your device of what you were doing and also good at sort of limiting the, the traces of who you might be communicating with. And it's very useful because, look, I mean, we're all going to be in a situation where everyone is kind of novices and, and new at this. Um, and Tails is great because it essentially comes pre-packaged with all of the tools, or most of the tools that you'll probably need to use. And that's PGP, that is OTR chat. Um, it has a, a disk encryption tool called Lux. Um, it basically will allow you to, to you know, engage and use those tools very easily because they're kind of already there and already set up. Um, and in the kind of situation I'm in, I would have, if I had my regular computer, I would have one computer that boots from Tails that connects to the internet, and then a third device that is what's called an air-gapped computer, which would be for working with sensitive documents that, um, that you know, you don't want to be connected to any network because of the risks that that connection could compromise that data and things like that. And that's air-gapped in the sense that that computer is never connected to Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I don't think, I mean, I've, I've sort of, I had a lot of discussions <laughs> before I um, talked about a lot of these things about whether I wanted to disclose all of these facts and whether that's not a good thing or whether that's going to pose risks in and of itself. But I think the more I kind of talked about it, I, it's a fairly common workflow with a lot of you know journalists in the US and things like that. And I don't think sort of necessarily compromising anything like that. That said, I probably you know periodically change those devices. And if you wanted to buy you know laptops and do that on your own, I highly recommend. Um, there's certain devices that do very well with, with Linux, which is what Tails is an operating system 
based on. Um, and those kind of devices are Lenovo, uh, sorry, ThinkPad X60 or ThinkPad T400s. Um, and they're really good, you know, they're reasonably cheap as well. Can, can you repeat that? Uh, like a ThinkPad T400 or a ThinkPad X60. Um, yeah, but I mean, that's, you know, that's kind of, if you want to get really serious about it, there's other really basic things that you can do, you know, just talking about kind of day-to-day -day things and workflows, like there's a lot of really great apps, rather than using iMessage or text message, you, you could use an app called Signal, you know, Signal is a really great um, open source app that has kind of recently undergone a very significant upgrade, it's, it's quite a more reasonably robust sort of encryption system for phones. Um, so I really recommend you guys get onto that. There are other ones as well. We all know Wicca from Malcolm Turnbull. Um, there's Threema, which is another um, another one. But when you're kind of, and this is another part, but when you're kind of looking at these tools and which ones to use, it can be really hard to sort of pick them as well. And that's where you know, I think you know you have to sort of go to people. You know, you have to kind of look at these tools in a very analytical way, in the same way you would approach any kind of journalism related issue. Like you need to find out, like one thing is that a lot of these are kind of peer reviewed or they want to go audits. So I really recommend if you, you know, kind of want to get into this and learn more about these tools, you kind of stay up to date with. Um, and if you just, you know, Google, you know, BGP audit or, you know, kind of um, look at some of the, the material online on their website or on, you know, various other security people websites, you'll find a lot of those kind of guides and things like that. Um, so that's a good way to sort of stay up. Uh, my question is how you get that, get to that point with the source. Like if you're talking to someone who's working on a um perhaps doesn't really have access to those things. How do you have that point of conversation? It's like we need to talk in a way that's encrypted because that's kind of giving away that they might give you information. Yeah, um, that I mean that is like, unfortunately, that is like the core problem right now for a lot of people. Um, and you know, I mean, some institutions are doing it. But what the Guardian has done is institute SecureDrop, which is a, a kind of server that we guide people to that facilitates, um, you know, communication that can only be done through Tor and, and using a kind of very convoluted setup. Um, but you know, even then, you know, if you get an email out of the blue from someone on Nauru or someone, you know, on a defense vessel or something like that, then when they want to talk to you, um, I think that journalists need to be aware that there is, you know, just that initial communication can be a risk, um, and it's even it's an even greater risk if they call you on the telephone. Like that's that's you know those, and it, and it happens. Like you get those calls, and um, and it, you know, and if that happens, I think something that you know and this is kind of about being responsible in your own reporting as well. That people just need to be able to recognise that you know those risks are are there when they do that, and you know whether or not. You know, you disclose that to the source and explain those risks is one thing, and then you know how you kind of proceed from there is something that I think people should get into. I mean, I, you know, it, it did not become that real for me until then last year we found out that you know the Guardian was subject to you know at least two AFP investigations as a result of our Assange reporting, and one of those related to a story like a story that I did on the customs vessel, the Ocean Protector. Um, that investigation is still sort of ongoing and you know like they are real risks and it's very difficult to know when you're going to cross that line or when a source is going to cross that line um, so I think you know if you can build institutional responses like having things like secure drop set up make it very clear the mechanisms for 
to be able to provide that information. You know, that's definitely a start. Um, but it has to just be a broad kind of educational response, I think. Yeah. yeah. I, um, we don't, we don't actually have any that. We get a lot of um, anonymous drops, and I think that's that's fairly problematic. They, if you try to pass the identity of the source to the journalist, then how do we actually verify that this is stuff that we can actually use? Because we get thrown stuff at us all the time, which is obviously designed to have a political purpose for like, um, So after the government change, we've got a lot of documents that were out of the field, kind of how do we actually verify that it's actually probably the input? So that took a long time before we could actually go and get published it. But uh, yeah, it's just one of those things you kind of, you have to develop, I guess, uh, you, need to, you need to work in an environment that you can verify the sources, but still make sure they're secure as well. And I think that, um, the way I work is I, I do a lot of work on the side of separate computers and I it is it is the risk assessment if you kind of judge. You don't you, you know your day stuff. You it would be too detrimental to your ability to work if you had to be encrypted uh, all the time. I think I think possibly one of the handiest things about uh, data retention and what it's uh, the public awareness of it is that these tools will potentially become more widely available and much easier to use over time. Um, I think there's a market for it. Actually, probably more amusingly, uh, in the last few days since the uh, Dallas Buyers Club uh, copyright case came down, I've had more people ask me about VPNs than I ever did under, um, under uh, data retention. So I think if people are worried about getting in trouble for piracy more than data retention, it's maybe a little bit more. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I was going to pick up on that thread of a play out between convenience and security because computers are insecure. So if you really want to be secure, you can throw away your computer. That's great. Or you can walk down the street wearing a suit of armor. That'll be that'll be great for you. Know, like, um, and that's our current tools. And that's part of internet infrastructure is really insecure and really dodgy. Um, HTTPS, which we're all told is this you know fantastic encryption that we use to secure all our banking, for example, or, you know connecting to medical service supply, whatever, is really dodgy and you know very very open to attack. Um, our phones. All these, all these communication methods aren't really, you know, the security of them isn't designed well. You, as journalists, have this real opportunity to try and make that a big deal. You know, that's not in the public interest. We need to be able to have secure communications for a whole range of reasons. Since all the, the Snowden stuff, um, in the tech community, there's been massive new energy and push around developing secure services, also the design of those services. And we really need um, yeah, and Signal actually is a really fantastic app because I think the design of it is extremely easy to use. Um, and again, it's a really great application, but we need more services that are more convenient and easier for people to use so that when you get that initial you know, contact from, from somebody, they happen to be using this really secure service. And, you know, and, and it's not all given away on the first go. But unfortunately, we're not there yet. But we, there's huge energy trying to get us there, but we need more. And I think I, I was in London um, a couple of weeks ago at a uh, conference all about civic tech, which is how the Open Australia Foundation does, which is uh, in, in, I don't know if it's in Citizen Four, but Edward Snowden talks about this balance between the power of the state and the power of, of people and individuals and citizens, and that the um, US security agencies have been really trying to ramp up the power of the state over citizens. So civic tech is, you know, explicitly about power of citizens. Um, and 
Ethan Zuckerman from the Enhanced Media Lab was there, and he was talking about different ways to create change uh, in a system. And one of those ways is code, that people can create new tools that, that you know, create change. So you know, people developing encryption apps, uh, applications and demand services and stuff like that. Another way is cultural change, that you know, through the media and through campaigning, um, we could have cultural change on some of these issues. Um, you know, some of you guys can be very involved in. And then laws are another really good way to create a change. So we could actually legislate encryption, or we could legislate that. Um, I mean, interesting. I think you guys talked about this as well. But in, with the metadata laws, you know, we've now we're going to require ISPs to store all this private information about us. Should we say that they have to keep that in a secure format? You know, we know we know that stuff's going to get hacked and it's going to fall into other people's hands. You know, this this isn't just about the government. Um, getting our information is about lots of different people getting our information. Um, you know, my understanding is that's not in the legislation, that it's not, uh, that would have to be kept in Australia or in encrypted format. It doesn't have to be kept in Australia. I think there is an encryption exception, but um, from what I've heard, I've spoken to a couple of ISPs about it, and they are, at least would be one for looking at encryption and storing it in Australia. It's, it's going to be one of those things that if they do it outside of Australia, it's going to be Uh, you know, imagine some of the small ones, you know, the NBN brings along with it a lot of very, very small and pop-up sort of uh, uh, ISPs that really had no need to store any data whatsoever. Uh, and now if they have to comply with this legislation, they don't have to go and start storing this stuff. And they're going to do it in the cheapest way possible, which is not in Australia. And I think, uh, you know, if you look at uh, the data, it's, there's no mandatory data breach notification law. There may possibly be as a result of the data retention legislation, but it hasn't happened yet. And if you look at the breaches that we do know about, uh, the vast majority happen to be from Telstra because people have found out about it. Um, if Telstra, the largest you know, telecommunications company in Australia, can't keep data secure, you've got to worry about the you know, hundreds of other tiny, tiny ISPs that, that don't have the resources that Telstra has. Also, I mean, the government itself is going to be accessing this information from ISPs. How are they going to store it? How is that transfer going to happen? Yeah, yeah. It's, no, no, there's, yeah there's, big it's, question. It's something in the legislation. I think they now. I oh don't. No, I don't think they still have to destroy it. I still don't think there's an obligation for them to destroy it once they've been breached. No, I, I don't think there is. Yeah. Um, so most of the way this will, just to give you guys like impressions out of how this works, when what happens is that um, you have a journalist. They do a story. It might be politically sensitive, it might be a kind of intelligent story, who knows. But because of the way our Crimes Act is crafted, where it has a very broad, a very broad sort of disclosure offence relating to essentially all Commonwealth information, it is an exceptionally broad offence. It's section 70 of the Crimes Act, and it basically says that if you're a Commonwealth officer or potentially a contractor and you disclose confidential, you disclose Commonwealth information, you are in breach of this section. So what we saw earlier in the year is that a number of journalists have been referred for breaches of this particular section. So the agencies will write to the AFP and say, can you please investigate this? We'll be prosecuting the sources if possible. The AFP probably going to drag their heels on it uh, because they don't really want to have to go you know, banging on journalists' doors or, um, and around arresting people for that because it looks very bad press for them. Um, and, but at some point, they will sort of take action on it. And one of the first things they'll do to take action on it is to probably request 
your phone records. Um, and this is what they, they've confirmed that in the last 18 months they have done in relation to some of, the, some of these investigations, all of which seem, seemingly just coincidentally related to asylum seeker policy and onboarding matters. Um, so they will refresh your phone records, and to do that, all they will need is a form. It is a one-page form. It says, we would like to request uh, this person's telecommunications data related to X service. Can you please provide it? And they will, there is a, an electronic distribution system called SendNote that they will use, or sometimes it will just be faxed, like quite legitimately faxed, or, or emailed, or something like that. Um, so that's that's kind of situation that you're talking about, where the law enforcement agency just says, we want this, and then the telco, in almost all circumstances, will give it back. And what they will get back is a kind of map of your, well, I mean, they will get a list, and then, which they will later visualize, which kind of becomes a map of your communications between certain people. That's phone records, um, and that's why phones are kind of the high, I, I would consider them probably at the very high end of the risk scale, because those kind of, that kind of data is already kept for billing purposes now. That's not something that is going to be kept under mandatory data retention. It is phone records are kept for a very long time already. Then you kind of move to other things like IP session logs and things like that. And it might be, and this is much harder to do, but it would be, you know, I'd like to request the certain contacts with this destination URL or, or I want to see what the IS, the IP address is that use this particular email address at this particular time. That's kind of a lot trickier, and it, at the moment, is much harder to do, but that's the kind of risks that you're talking about, and that's why I, I think that this issue with kind of soliciting tips confidentially by, by email is particularly problematic, because in, in theory it's accessible. Um, and, you know, and then if there is some data that the software can provide, you know, they'll hand it over. Um, so that's the kind of risk model you're often looking at with those kind of issues surrounding AFP investigations. But I guess the other unfortunate thing to kind of consider is that those kind of risk models are actually still on the very low end of the technical capacity of the agencies. That's where you know the AFP is essentially co-opting the telcos into storing and accessing the data for them. Um, but you know if you get to the level where you're talking about ASIO or the Australian Signals Directorate, I mean their capacity is what you know, the Snowden disclosures have shown us, and you know, God knows where they are five years out the track now. Um, you know, they have very substantial capacities to do that. And the reality is that will, you know, hopefully, maybe I don't know, it depends how kind of you know gung ho you guys are, but you know, that's probably not going to be a big part of your risk assessment a lot of the time because you're not always going to be doing stories about intelligence related stories and things like that. Um, so a lot more of the time, I think the kind of threat model or the the risk model people should be thinking about is you know, the Australian Federal Police and what they can do um, and what their kind of capacity is. Um, but um, you, know, you need to kind of be aware of all those kind of levels of risk um, to understand it. And they're, quite, they're trying to be quite sneaky about it as well. I mean, that, that number of the past 18 months only came out because of what Henry uh, Lane said about um, you know, the journalist disclosures in the past. And I've been trying to get information about that. Like, you Disclose whether or not it's actually happening because it might compromise our ability to do it in the future. Um, and you've got it at the same time the, uh, the Telecommunications Exception and Access Act report, which is usually tabled in Parliament in November. It 
it's now April and it hasn't actually been cabled yet. And um, the, the, the draft report is there, the department's told me that it's there. I can get it in more than $800 for the uh, FOI access fee, but um, uh, the reason why I, I, I don't really know exactly why it wasn't tabled, but I imagine the department is holding it back because the numbers can get much faster and much larger than they were in the last report, which was like 500000 for the previous uh, financial year. So the fact that they're trying to hold it back means that there are some interest in that Yeah, I, I, I can, I, I strongly suspect that's also the reason. Um, and I think probably a big part of it is because, um, so one of the, perhaps the only kind of saving graces of the, the data retention amendment is that it contracted the number of agencies that could expressly request metadata or telecommunications data. Um, so you know, the RSPCA won't in its own right, fortunately, any longer be able to request access to your telecommunications data. Um, so I, the, the indication that has sort of trickled down has been that over the last few years, those agencies that suddenly realised they were going to use, you know, lose those powers um, very quickly realised that they um, should you know, clear the decks of any ongoing investigations they had at the time <laughs> before, they, um, before it had to all go through the feds or the state police agencies. And then one thing, going back to the approval process as well, um, so there's what, 2,800 something uh, approval offices that can authorize access to this data. Once that goes to the telco, the telco doesn't, you know, do any discerning. Oh, you can't have this person's data because they're information is not in the policy journals. They just look at the number, grab the data, and follow through. So there's zero chance of making sure the agency is actually doing the right thing from the telco point of view. So it's, once it gets that internal approval, that's it. I think part of this. Um, stuff about the way they request this and the things that do with it, that government, you know, everywhere <coughs> in Australia as well, government departments continue to show their um, ability to really not take you know, privacy and people's security um, seriously. And a whole lot of data breaches have happened because agencies have published information that was meant to be private or meant to be secure. They just published it themselves or they just put it out there themselves. And that's also been what the journalist can do, that a source can give you a document, you can then publish that document, and you, you know, haven't checked the metadata or whatever in that document, or New York Times, I um, mean, probably saw some uh, Snowden came under criticism on the um, John Oliver show recently because the New York Times published one of the documents that he handed to them and they didn't uh, redact one of them properly, mm -hmm. and it was released that, that the NSA was spying on ISIS and Yemen or something like that. And um, so then Edward Snowden's come out because of that. That's the journalists have revealed through their source books that there is. And that, that's really the reason. Are there, are there people here who, does anyone want to talk more about like some of the specific tools? Or, because I think part of the big message is that none of this is, you know, or, I mean, this is from my perspective as well. I know you've got a perspective, but I really feel like if, if somebody contacted me with, and they said, you know, I have some information for you, I would say don't contact me because I personally don't feel like I have the, the level of skill required to, to keep that secure and I would try and pass it to another organization who did have the infrastructure to do that. Um, you know, particularly because all this information is kept into the future and you don't know what you're going to want to be involved with or the stories you want to work on in, in the future. And the powers of those agencies, I feel pretty paranoid about those. Um, 
There are a couple of questions. Oh yes, yeah, more concerned about the emails. Um, yeah. Is there what kind of options you guys might recommend in terms of you know, secure emails and options? And um, what is the deal with Gmail? Like how? I mean, it's interesting how government might actually get around. You know, Gmail being an overseas location. Well, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say it was a, part of those um, the Snowden disclosures was that through the Prism program, the NSA you know, claimed it has a backdoor to Gmail. Yeah. And then my understanding is Australian agencies or you know, ATO can access that through another program called XKeyScore, which is kind of like the front end to their, their database. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't. So you see that you know, the different internet uh, companies, Google, Facebook, Twitter, and all this, puts out transparency reports all the time. And from the face of it, it looks like they basically just reject the vast majority of requests from Australian law enforcement agencies. But because of those mutual assistance obligations that they have in terms of the US and uh, law enforcement agencies there, they can just get the US to, to do their most if it's something that they really, really need. So there's nothing. So secure just because we're in Australia and you know, trying to have a go at the, the US companies means it's less secure. Yeah, I mean, I think the issue with the secure email is it's a slightly kind of general concept because it depends what you're talking about when you're you're talking about security. Like, if the if your intention is to conceal the fact that you are communicating with somebody, then the which particular email you use is not going to be the kind of key question in, in that sort of determination. The, the kind of key question would be like, what are you and the person you're, contact, the person you're contacting doing to kind of anonymize those communications, and that's often through Tor or something like that. But, um, I mean, there are lots of like other, if you are talking about um, the, the contents of a communication and access to it, then there are kind of have these two sort of options. You can go with these sort of large providers like Gmail that potentially do have these backdoors, but you know, by all accounts, in, in some respects, do have um, at least reasonable security, but you know, and, but you know, we know, sort of will hand over information in some circumstances and things like that. Um, or you can go with these smaller, the smaller providers out there that sort of make as part of their mission um, reducing the amount of data that they store on their users and things like that. And that can be an option. And that's provided like RiseUp um, or HushMail or ProtonMail. Um, those are kind of ones, some of you might have heard of those, but they're all kind of potential options that people can use for them. So something you might do is, you know, you um, if you're in a situation where you need to create a whole new sort of persona or identity, you know, you would boot, boot up using Tails which, you know, and then using Tor, set up a new account on RiseUp email address, and then kind of use that, um, you know, as a totally de-identified way to, to try and communicate with people. We're not quite as simple as that. But, um, but that is kind of, that in theory, then, you know, that's the kind of theory of it for those situations. Um, and if you use those providers, you know, they kind of all hold themselves out to be very reluctant to hand over requests to law enforcement. Um, you know, they'll probably make quite a big deal when those requests do happen. Um, of course, there is 
with using all these tools, and it's the same with email as well. The risk that you have a situation where, because it's known that people who are looking to conceal their communication are using those particular providers, that they may also become uh, a sort of target. And, and that did happen with LavaBit, which is a, a US email provider <coughs> that, um, that is now defunct uh, because certainly the, the strong illusion is that because Edward Snowden was using it, among others, that it became a, a target for law enforcement requests to. To hand over their logs. So yeah, I mean, there's always there's different ways to look at it, but those are definitely some of the providers. I think a lot of the those services now are trying to take their hands basically hand off the encryption. So a lot of it was service I think before where the operators themselves have the keys to all the security, but now they're putting quite a few things in use and say, uh, if we get these sorts of requests then it's all in your hands. We we if we get this request we have to enter that we can't see That's that thing that Gary posts all the Snowden stuff. There's huge energy to try and design new services that, that are secure. There's a really great article by um, Trevor Tim, uh, who's the is he the president of the Press Freedom Foundation in the States? But he was the person who Snowden contacted to get in touch with um, Laura Poitras. Um, and he wrote an article just about how that worked, and it just kind of breaks down this now Snowden got in contact with me. This is you know, and the steps he took. This is with my approach in that situation, and a big part of his approach again was, you know, that he's trying to get in contact with someone else. I do not need to know what that is about, and I don't want to know. Like, do not tell me. You know, never ever you know, find anything secret unless you absolutely have to. Um, and then the process he went through to um, to hand it on to Dora um, Poitras, and um, and then the the process between. Um, Snowden and her that he helped them verify that they were actually in contact with each other and then passing them some agreement. So it's a really good kind of breakdown of some of the practical steps that they went through with their emails. And I guess you're talking about other practical things, you know, it doesn't always have to be the kind of hi-fi solutions. Um, I know it's yeah, still very yeah, solid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, like you know, if you don't need to use your phone and have sort of initiated contact with someone face to face, then try and keep it like that, or work out a mechanism to keep it like that. Um, if you are going to meet someone who you know you know is potentially, you know, they have information that could be seen as, as a high risk or highly confidential, don't take your phone with you. You know, don't um, you know don't sort of leave a very clear trail, electronic trail of where you're going and or you know something that could show why you're going there if you can avoid it. Um, you know, if you are in those kind of meetings, even if you're in those meetings in the office, you know, um, don't take your phones into those meetings with you. Um, you know, if there are VoIP phones in the room with you, and this is you know kind of also you know paranoid sort of stuff as well. But like, but, you know, don't you know turn the VoIP phones off when you're sitting in the meeting room. But you know, like I say, so don't turn them on. Or I, I said turn them off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or unplug yeah. them. Yeah, unplug them. Yeah. Um, you know, lots of little sort of things that you can just you know, just think about the kind of environment you're in. Um, you know, and if you can. You know, if you can get away with never using any of these tools, but kind of, you know, um, you know, that's that's fine. But even just understanding the risks that we were talking about because of the legal framework and because of the technical things is really kind of essential to have as well.
feels like we do have some momentum at the moment with all this discussion after legislation. What do you think we can be doing as individual journalists um, and also as bigger organisations like the Walkers or MIA in terms of educating both journalists and sources on how they can work in this environment? I would say um, in terms of sources, like, I mean, obviously I have no idea who is going to get a job or whatever department in the next few years, so it has to be about everybody. And also, I really do think it's, it's, it's not just about journalists and their sources, it's about everybody's security, and not just against the government, but against, you know, petty criminals, or I'm sure you've all seen um, the, you know, the unfortunate, I've seen enough stories, but stories about, you know, fairly low-level criminals hacking into people's laptops, turning on the cameras, photographing people naked and extorting, you know, and kids. Like, yeah, and, and it's not like some massive conspiracy, it's like, you know, somebody who's was annoyed in them in high school or something like that. Um, has to be about everybody. I think running, you know, educational material in papers, you know, or, or whatever, I think <laughs> in the media, it was really, really important thing. Like, and getting it into schools and um, like journalism schools, it's ridiculous that journalism schools don't have subjects on this stuff. I mean, it's insane. Um, that's, that's what I think we get to. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with Pablo. I think that there is a need for kind of a more targeted or tailored response to certain types of people. And, and personally, I would, I, I would love to see, you know, the Service guide to leaking. I would love someone to write that and distribute paper pamphlets all around Canberra that just yeah. says, "This is um, these are some tips and tricks that you know are kind of helpful to use and might make your life a little bit easier if you happen to want to do that." So, but I, um, I, yeah, we'll, we'll see whether that happens or not. Yeah, I think you have to make it more interesting for people to like. There's a lot of I guess raise awareness of the tools that are available. I don't know. It's, it's it, I don't think it, I, I agree with you guys. It's not something that should be really specific for journalists to. Um, journalists should be something that everyone should be learning. Mm -hmm. And I think we're still at the point where uh, basic computer skills aren't really taught in school. So it's going to be a long, long way in like cryptography you know, or you know, security communication is going to be taught. You know, it's just something that uh, I think. If journalists want to differentiate themselves and want to be known as being, I guess, reliable and trustworthy, um, then they'll do use these tools and people will know to drop to them. I think that it's a competitive advantage for some of us at the moment, I guess, uh, as well as, as one I guess on the educational side, well, we were talking about this outside, I think, but you know, all, the, all the debate about, you know, we have warrants for journalists because of, you know, but, and then you have Malcolm Turnbull going on. And also, I should say that. Open Show Foundation is totally on part of it, not political. Mountain <laughs> um, Turnbull going on, you know, like media, an independent media is a cornerstone of our democracy. But it's the actions of, you know, that's because they're publishing material information about government you know, programs or you know, whatever institutional programs and letting people make up their mind about it. It's the whistleblowing or the actual passing of information that action is the it's not this class of people who are journalists who are like any card holders. I mean, that, that's, I think, 
totally token and, and throwaway. And it, if journalists are actually serious about protecting their sources, you know, they need to teach their sources to protect themselves. And, and that's about education. But it's also about putting pressure on tech companies about their security. How, I mean, I don't know if people saw the you know, we've got Apple users here. I use an Apple computer. Massive security bug in Apple was patched today. It was a patch where it was released. The bug has existed for um, since 2011, giving uh, potentially people access, root access to your computer, which means your computer is totally compromised. Um, that is, you know, that's about everybody's security in their, you know, their personal computers. This is people that keep on their on it. Apple aren't going to patch it for anything but the very latest release of Mac OS X. So if you're not on the latest version of Mac OS X, there's now a known exploit of your computer that's public as of this morning. That's, I think, a big story. Apple needs to, you know, Apple gets such an easy ride in the press. You know, people should, you know, there is in the public interest for them to come to much more scrutiny. Um, and to because you know, they have the power to, they they have the power to improve people's security, and you know, they need to be kind of forced to do that. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to change topics take that next and for instance I'll tell you where I have taken it next. So I've downloaded the Tor browser bundle um, which you guys were talking about before. It's not the whole Tails, it's not the whole operating system. It is a bundle which includes the browser and the Tor connects through Tor. So I've opened that up and I've created myself a riseup.net account. Now how do I send a secure message to pull.prail and riseup.net? Uh, now I appreciate this isn't a workshop or anything. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, I mean, the, the way that we work is that my public key is stored on a, a, a keychain, and you would access that by you know, inputting my email address and my fingerprint um, into that. And once you have my public key, you can then send me um, the way that BGP encryption works for everyone is that it, it, it's, a, it's a kind of dual key encryption process. Uh, it's not going to be easy. Um, but it's, it relies on um, you using you having um, you using another user's particular public key to encrypt all of your communication to them. And using that particular key, that's like their kind of cipher. That, that, that's the cipher that you use to encrypt things to them. 
And the only way they can decrypt that is they have their own, like a kind of a, a secondary sort of cipher, which is called a private key. Um, and when they use that particular cipher, that's how they decrypt things. And then they can send a message back to you by using your cipher or your public key to transmit a message sort of back. Um, so, but, and this is, and, and I, I think you're right, um, like, and it is something that I'm kind of working out what the best way to update it is as well, to actually explain a bit more about how to contact me. Um, but, yeah, it's um, the, and this is something that the Intercept has done recently, where they've kind of put up a page saying, these are the different methods you can use to contact us and how to do, how to do that. Um, but, yeah, I, I totally take your point. Um, and, you know, it's something that I need to sort of address as well, um, is something that given a lot of thought to, and there is kind of a, a big sort of change that I'm making that I don't really want to talk about just yet, um, but it's, um, it is really difficult, yeah. Um, so I take your public key, and I, I've got my message. Yeah. So I've got mm -hmm. to download the PGP tools. P PGP tools, yeah. yeah. Right. So it's a Mac app that I can put in your key and my message into, and it will turn out something. So yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then I whack that something in my email to yeah. So I can send that from me at RiseUp to you at RiseUp. Yeah. And you'll get that whole scrambled thing. And remember the, the message is scrambled. Yeah. But the metadata of the message is not. That's okay. So that this address email calls yep. address and the time and location and all that and the IP address, all that stuff is not encrypted. So there's no real way we can expect to mask that. We just trust that someone like RiseUp as opposed to someone like Gmail or Hotmail are not going to turn that sort of thing over so easily. Yeah. The, yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the, that's, that's, yeah, okay. I think, reasonable. Yeah. You get my piece of scramble, whatever, and you use your private key. Yeah, to, to decrypt it. To decrypt it. Yeah, okay. And then if you want to message me back, I need to have my, my public key somewhere where you can find it and see it. So you yeah. email it in that. Okay, so I can put it in that message, yeah. is that right? Yeah. So Snowden, when he first contacted and Trevor Trim contacted um, Poitras, forgot to put his public key in the email, which meant she couldn't email him back. Um, and then you know, they eventually worked it out. But yeah, so everybody makes mistakes. So that is that's a part of the process. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you guys ever consider using burners to contact people who are not necessarily Yeah, well, <laughs> but yeah, so there's also a really good question. The, the issue in Australia is we have very, very stringent ID requirements that don't exist in, for instance, the US um, or in a lot of other countries. So, you know, we've all seen, like, everyone's, well, probably everyone in here probably has a lot of life. So, you know, like, you know, they use, they use burn phones to, which are like prepaid phones that they buy and chuck uh, to do their drug deals. Or in this case, they talk about sources, but I think you can say. But, but here it's very hard to do that because you need to have very, very stringent checks um, for who can actually connect to Optus or Vodafone or things like that. Um, so the only way essentially to do that is to is, is to falsify the ID requirements uh, and do that, you know, which will which will probably be an offence. So if you kind of want to assume that risk, that's something that you have to sort of think about for yourself. Um, you know, the alternative to use get someone else to sign up for it and use their sort of phone, but then are you kind of putting someone else in a difficult spot as well? 
um, which is why I suspect in Australia it will be the kind of easiest alternative for point-to-point kind of -point communications will end up being different types of over-the-top applications that are like, and you know, like, and Malcolm Turnbull, like, you know, don't, like, what Malcolm Turnbull said about metadata is a very reductive way and very misleading kind of analysis of how how it all operates, because it doesn't operate in a vacuum, you know, and, and his suggestions that this is all not a big deal, I think it's quite disingenuous. Um, but the, what he's right about is that because the data retention scheme won't be able to kind of entirely pick up a lot of communications over from point to point uh, from over the top providers, and that's like applications like Wicca or Threema or Sun or things like that, it means that it is harder for an agent, for a base level agency like the AFP, <laughs> don't tell them I called them that, but for an agency like the AFP, if they were to, you know, and, you can, and this is what the kind of more you understand about the, the technical aspects of this issue, if you understand, but the, um, if you have uh, a person communicating over three months um, on a, you know, with another user over three months, if the AFP went to the, your telecommunications company or your phone provider and said, we want to find out who they're communicating with over this app. They would say, well, all we can tell you is that the fact that they are using this app potentially and your traffic to that app. But they're not going to be able to give the answer to who this person is communicating with at that kind of base level. And then maybe they'll go to Apple and they'll say to Apple, can you tell us like how they're using this app? And Apple won't be able to do that either. And then you know they could potentially go to the application itself, but basically use away a lot of those very high level more sophisticated encryption apps are designed so that they can't provide that information, or they won't provide that information. That said, um, I, I still think caution is definitely warranted when using those kind of tools because that's like, you know, the, the metadata still exists. <coughs> the fact that that communication is occurring is still potentially visible, but it would just require a kind of higher level of intrusion to, to detect it. Um, but, you know, as, as said that that high level is not as often going to be initiated, but, but just definitely caution with, with using that. So you know, and that's why I have the, the Threema ID on my on my um, profile because that's you know potentially until I get my larger things worked out, that's potentially another kind of option for communication. And and yeah, so it's this people call like a wave of trust or a network of trust that um, don't go and on the app store and then just like flick through it, like search up secure messages and, and download one and you know, think that's secure. Um, go and find ones that security experts recommend. Um, and then the other thing is very much about using caution is that all of these uh, encryption um, protocols and, and um, the other bits of software people make are made by humans and those humans make mistakes. And, um, yeah, recently there was a big, I think last year or the year before, there was a big half lead um, you know, case that um, uh, was making a huge amount of people. Um, for two years that existed. And the suggestion that probably some people knew about it you know, for part of that period of time, and that made a whole range of communications insecure uh, and you know, secure apps insecure. So uh, we can, you know, one thing we know is that in the future there will bugs in all these apps will be discovered and people will have known about them for some period of time. Just you know, so I think the key thing is don't like write anything down if you can avoid it. You know. Can I ask you a question about so um, 
think I think that that's what it comes down to. Yeah, I think um, that's a good situation to be in, and sometimes the answer to that might be that they should be very careful and that you, know, you should advise them that there are risks to communicating with you, and I've had to do that. And I've definitely scared people off when I've done that. Um, but, you know, and, and that is right there, that is the chilling effect of you know, when you have this kind of surveillance, like where journalists become less reluctant to talk and sources become less reluctant to talk and things like that. But I think it's a reality that has to be acknowledged. Um, and when you look at what has happened over the last year, particularly in that in that in that space, which I've spent a lot of time covering, you know, like these these stories have ended up with the feds. Um, and I don't think the feds are particularly happy about it either, and fortunately there haven't been any sort of prosecution. But I think that, that you know when you have a government that is willing to take some quite aggressive steps to deter people to speak out, then you have to acknowledge the potential that you know those risks are, are real. Um, so you know I, I'm not saying you should not speak to people or, or sort of deter people from speaking, but just, you know, they need to be aware if, if they're potentially going to be in a difficult situation down, down the track. And so, advising the risk and, and burnings are off the table, but are there any other practical things they can do to minimise risk? Yeah, well, I mean, well, like we were just talking about, I mean, even using some of those applications that are, you know, rather than having a, like a phone-based communication, like even if you they were to use, you know, three mole signal or something like that, it would at least be not as easy for that information to be very easily disclosed. So, and those applications are very easy to use. Um, they're just messaging, they're just everyday messaging applications, you know, for, for in how, how you kind of use them. Um, so that's, you know, something that, and I think a lot of people's communications will end up kind of being used through various versions of those chat things. Um, yeah, but I mean, you know, some of the centres, if they do have, um, you know, like if they do potentially have public phones or if they can use other people's phones, that, that is definitely an option as well. Um, but I think, you know, there's, you know, it has to be acknowledged that those risks exist and they are real. So, you know, and if you can't reduce them by teaching, you know, kind of like, you know, showing the source how they need to by, you know, providing that information, then you know, they very much have to be acknowledged up front. So, yeah. Something a, a, um, somebody who really un understands encryption, um, to, to, to me recently, is that he thinks that if you're going to be a whistleblower, you know, wake up and realize that the government doesn't, or corporate, whatever, like institution doesn't like that, and they're going to, if they find out who you are, they're going to come down and like a ton of bricks. And you have to be willing to go to jail or willing to kind of suffer those consequences to do that. That's pretty scary, I think, you know, and, and obviously most people aren't going to do that, you know, they're not going to wear that risk, but um, as somebody who, you know, as somebody who's maybe from a kind of source perspective or whatever, or a citizen perspective, actually understanding that, yeah, I think is the most important thing, like 
understanding, you know, potentially I'm not going to be able to protect you, you're not going to be able to protect yourself, do you still want to come forward and do this? And then, you know, you can make a decision. But it's yeah, scary. It's yeah. worth that little sketch, I guess. Yeah, like, exactly. You have a certain responsibility as journalists to, to uh, not only, we have a responsibility to get the story out there, but also to protect the people who are doing it for us. So as long as they're educated to inform you of that level, It's up to the source to make the judgment call as well. Like if, they, if they feel like it's something they're uh, okay with the level of risk that they're taking, then that's a judgment call that we can, we can help make it as secure as possible as we can. But uh, ultimately, it's up to them to, to judge their own level of risk as well. Thank God there are so many amazing people who are willing to you know, say, I am willing to go to jail. Legislations that have existed before basically gave them access to whatever telcos happened to hold. Uh, some telcos hold held more than others, like I mentioned, I had has, has years and years and years and years of data. Uh, they would never admit to that though. But the legislation now mandates the set type of data and the amount of time that can be And this this is one of the things that comes up with the copyright thing as well, because Someone was telling me as well uh, that uh, so Telstra now has the ability to, if you want to, you can pay a fee to get access to your own data. Uh, someone was <laughs> someone was telling me that uh, insurance companies could potentially use this to, um, you know, if, if you have access to your own data, then they can compel you to hand over that data. So if they're trying to investigate you for insurance fraud, then they can potentially use that to have a look at you know, where you've been and what you've been doing, so compel you to hand over that data. Yeah, I mean, a lot of health insurance companies already have provisions where they basically ask you to like waive the right to access your own personal medical records. We've seen that to them, so um, you can see that be a kind of next logical clause that would be inserted into a lot of you know health insurance contracts or whatever sort of things as well. Yeah. I'm just wondering if anyone's tried to 
do um, sort of security by obscurity. Um, I used to do that, but at the moment, I my partner is um, works for defence, and as part of the security clearance, his partner has to be give out pretty much everything about my life, um, and so I'm I'm now a person of interest. But um, prior to that, um, I managed to do things manually. I don't even um, have the sort of tech thing of this, and I'm just wondering whether anybody else. Yeah, I think maybe for, for organizations to really put a lot of volume and care for their groups in general, put a lot of thought into that and try and develop more systems that aren't digital. But that's a really good idea. A good question about warrants on metadata. Do you, does the journalist actually get notified that, no? My sense is legal to report yes. on the activities you're aware of. Yeah, yeah. So it's the so to be clear, the the way it works now is that the journalists have been granted a security status where it's um, to access a journalist's specific metadata, you need a warrant to access it. That warrant is marginally contested because the government has said that they will have a public interest advocate representing the the journalist in these closed proceedings. So it's but it doesn't, it doesn't go to a judge. It does so it, yeah, so it will be so the situation is it will be a closed secret court that the journalist will not be aware of, you know, the journalist will not know that this is happening and 
that the government has handpicked to take on this particular task. The Prime Minister. The Prime Minister. Yeah, choose that. Um, and you, you will have, in theory, no knowledge of that proceeding. And, and if you were to determine, if you were to have knowledge of those proceedings, it would be an offence to disclose them. Which, which mirrors the, the, the way that the Act currently works, because it, the, the Act in and of itself now has a, a disclosure offence if you just, if you confirm what it, you know, if you confirm the existence of a telecommunications data request, which is also partly why you had the AFP's very vague confirmation that in the last 18 months they had, they had sort of, you know, had a, requested journalist metadata really or something like that, because um, they obviously felt they could sort of get away with that without being captured by their own disclosure offence. Mind you, they already breached their own disclosure offence when they accidentally leaked their own metadata request files <laughs> when they when they sent them to the Senate and failed to redact them properly, which is you know what happened last year. So that those kind of events don't you know inspire very much confidence when they're breaching their own sort of disclosure offences accidentally. Um, I was um, going through on day a few of the sites we have that has all the divisions of Parliament looking at some of the, the votes in Parliament on the amendments. And one of them, Xenophon um, tries to introduce an amendment that you have to to come under this like, disclosure um, offence, and I think it's two years jail for the publishing of something like, informationally one warrants. Tries to introduce an amendment that you have to have intentionally published information related to the warrants, because firstly, how would you know about this warrant, the existence of this warrant? Because you know, they're meant, they're meant to be top secret, and he gives the example of you could have before, you know, potentially years before this this warrant has been. Publish information online that relates to this case and this source and this warrant somehow. And it's just in, in the act I understand it just says information related to this warrant. Um, you could have published that online, it could still be online. This warrant, this comes about, there's no way you know that it exists or you're in breach of this act. But yet now you're at risk of two years in jail. And that gets voted out, you know, that gets uh, a vote of no. Another question about the warrant, how often can they apply for it on a particular individual? And did you mention that the data is very specific? It's not like a bulk? So, so I mean, if, they, if by theory they could just go get a list of all the journals in Australia and say, we want the last two years for all these journals. Yeah. But obviously the public interest advocates kind of be... It, it, yeah, I mean, wouldn't be able to get past that. I mean, just in theory, they well, in theory, they can do that right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, without before this sort of process becomes, you know, becomes enacted. Um, where, you know, I mean, the, the way the forms that I've seen, uh, they are very stripped back. They basically just say, here is, you know, we, we are investigating an offence under section whatever it is. The journalist, we probably section seventy of the Crimes Act. Um, that's what they say. They, that's you know that's the justification. We need this because we're investigating this section, um, and it will say the identifiers that we're looking for will be, you know, it might be your, like all services connected to your name, or, or what it might be once they have that information, then they'll do another one, and it'll be all of the phone records from you know this mobile number that we determined was connected to it, and then it might get more sophisticated. Uh, you know, so you could have a situation where the journalist has been subject to sort of five requests in succession. 
for information about different types of services that they were kind of used to build a picture. And that's one of the things that, that did sort of come out over the last year as well with how they count authorizations and disclosures and, and things like that, where you would have a you know a particular um, a particular form going out for saying we want to find out if this person is using X service. Um, and they would send that out to Optus, Telstra, Vodafone, and IINet to, and, and just do a scattergun approach. So they would do sort of hear all the telcos. But obviously, if they don't know what kind of phone you're using, then they, they do it multiple times and they try and pin that down. So they send off the request for everyone, um, you know, to all the different providers. So you can bet that, you know, for the journalists that have been subject to these, and you know, there'd be plenty of people like Mackenzie and Chibachi sure would have had this kind of thing happen to them and stuff like that, but they're sort of requested, you know, there's, there's very strenuous attempts to kind of work out who they've been in touch with and what services they might have been using and things like that. So. And I, just as well, the Paul's the qualified law person, but um, my understanding is they don't need a warrant to access a journalist's metadata. They, it's only metadata related to a source. So, yes, they could do a request for would. The other thing is they don't need a warrant to access the sources metadata in relation to So you just work out, you know, who are the 20 people that have access to this article? Let's get all of their metadata. Oh, here's Paul's email. <laughs> yeah. So it kind of works out that way. Which is, that's why, one of the reasons why it's totally token suggestion of that protects sources. Yeah, because yeah. you work at the source and then go back. Yeah, exactly. Take one last question from Chris, and then we'll wrap up. But you guys will be able to stay around for a little while if you yeah. have questions or drinks. Yeah. Um, not just everyone wants a drink, but um, legal professional privilege. I assume that's still protected by no. This, I think that's why I'm interested in this scope to work with lawyers that can take, for example, whistleblower information, and then um, uh, you know, yeah, journal, journalists kind of lock into that system. Um, or is that just like how, how we know how we that was that, that was one of the most ridiculous things in the last days before the legislation passed.